This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which is no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, that's me, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, we, we always start this show off by talking about football, more specifically talking about the NFL, more specifically even than that, talking about our bears, which is something that we do uh, we do share an affinity for. Um, they lost this last game. Um, they continue to lose. But not, the thing to me is not that they – I mean, they, I can't say they continue to lose. I think they're 2-2, two and two, so it's not that bad. But when they do lose, what adds insult to injury is the way they treat my man Justin Fields, just letting him get beat up. And you assured me that this wouldn't happen, that they had taken care of the offensive line. I'm not seeing it. And now I'm seeing articles about, oh, is Justin Fields the future of the Bears? If he's not, they're foolish. And it's also their fault because they put him in there at this early stage in his career with no protection. Uh, Can you defend that move by um, the Chicago Bears, sir? Well, I'll I'll defend this this weekend. So we we went to New York and played a very, very good uh, New York Giants team. Very, very good. Okay. Go ahead. You know, and, uh, you know, it, it was it was a difficult experience. But, you know, I still say we'll see progress throughout this season and we'll see progress uh, throughout the next few seasons. Justin Phil's going to be all right. And the Bears are going to be all right. OK, I'm, I'm going to hold you to that because uh, they got to get some. Letters. But let me ask you this. Is Justin Fields the future of the Chicago Bears? Well, you know. I think if, if the Bears don't think Justin Fields is the future, I don't know, uh, you know, where they're going to go get the future from next. They we've had the future a-, a lot. Yeah, we've had the future a lot at this point. So I hope that, you know, you, you do see a little bit of that coming out. Hopefully that's not coming from, you know, the, the well, actual what Bears. What could succeed under those circumstances, though? You know what I mean? I mean, no offensive yeah. line. Um, and, and the and the list goes on, man. So we will keep our eyes. Yeah, for sure. We will keep our eyes on uh, the Chicago Bears and what's going on. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons did win. Uh, my Vanderbilt Commodores had a bye. Uh, so a lot of good football going on. My little league team uh, uh, had a victory. So on the whole, it was a good weekend. Thank you, thank you. On the whole, it was a good weekend. Um, but we got a lot of stuff to talk about, so we'll start to to get into that. As always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. And to all those Patreon supporters and folks support us in other ways. Thank you for 
the support. We greatly appreciate it. As usual, you know what it is. We're going to get into it. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And let's start with some scripture. Chris, Philippians uh, 4, chapter 4, verse 8 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, we know that the primary purpose of music is to worship God. I personally don't think that prohibits all other genres of music, but we should admit that music can have an impact on our thoughts, on our feelings, on our overall worldview, for better or for worse. Now, Chris, I've been a hip-hop fan since I was seven or eight years old. My older cousins introduced me to this uniquely African-American art form over 30 years ago, and I've been nodding my head ever since. Now, to be honest, I wasn't into really that first era of hip hop when you're talking about like DJ Cool Herc, Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang, Curtis Blow and all that. That that was a little bit before my time. I really started listening to hip hop around the time when the when West Coast rap ascended onto the rap scene. So we're talking about Ice T, Ice Cube, DJ Quick, uh, NWA, folks like that. My favorite rapper of all time, though, Chris, is Tupac Shakur. You talk about his passion, his insight, his delivery. And then you also have the duplicity between keep your head up consciousness and on the one hand and misogyny and violence on the other. That's that's part of it, if we're going to be honest. I remember debating almost daily at school and wherever I was at about the East Coast, West Coast rap beef, editorializing the source awards from that time. And it was all spirited fun and games until people started getting shot. Until tragedy struck. Tupac died in Vegas. Biggie Smalls died in L.A. and the mood changed. Those were eye opening, devastating days. But the sound never stopped. The lyrics never kept, never stopped dropping, and the music, the art form, kept evolving. I still remember the day my cousin Jermaine introduced me to Common's album, One Day It All Makes Sense. That's when I started to place a higher value, Chris, on lyrics, on rap lyrics, and just lyrics in general. Uh, this is back when Common was making pro-life raps with Lauryn Hill, and it just ended his rap beef with Ice Cube. Back, this is back when Chris, uh, after you got home from school, at least after I got home from school, we would watch BET after school and watch the best rappers in the game go into the booth and freestyle with Big Tigger. Me and my guys still talk about when Philadelphia Freeway was freestyling in the booth before his first album dropped, and he didn't let anybody else get on the mic. So, how the booth worked on Rap City is that there would be maybe two, three, or four rappers, and they would take turns freestyling into the mic. Freestyling means that you didn't have it written down. At least it used to mean that you didn't necessarily have it written down, but you would say what was off the top of your head, say what was on your mind, and you would rap it that way. Well, When Freestyle went on there, he rapped the entire time. He didn't pass the mic at all. And in one of the most audacious moves that I've ever seen in hip-hop history, 
he actually pushed my man, Eric Sermon, who is a rap legend. He pushed him as Eric Sermon tried to approach the mic. So you have a hip hop legend approaching the mic, Philadelphia Freeway, pushes him out the way and keeps rapping. He rapped the whole time. Then my man released a single entitled What We Do with no hook that was an instant classic. Just going over some memories in hip hop history. I also remember when all eyes shifted to the southern region of the map. It started with UGK, Master P, MJG and 8-Ball, and then came Outkast and the Dungeon Family who put Atlanta on the map. I remember like it was yesterday hearing their first album, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music, on a road trip with my cousins to a family reunion and my head exploding. Chris, I had never heard anything like this in my life. Like no one else, Outkast combined Southern wisdom, a dope new sound, and street savvy that wasn't pretentious. They delivered wisdom far beyond their years through Southern slang, but it wasn't preachy or self-righteous. It, it wasn't forced. And I'll go so far as to say because of Outkast, I became somewhat intrigued by the South and Atlanta in particular. And if I'm going to be honest, it's a significant reason that I live in Atlanta today. I'm not ashamed to admit that. They painted a picture and that illustration is still lingering in my mind as I speak to you right now. Now, when I say hip hop impacted my life, I mean that literally. But it's always been a conflicted relationship. As powerful as the inspiration of hip hop has been, the negativity has been just as powerful, if I'm going to be honest. Now, my mother would never allow me to listen to obscene music in the house or anywhere else if she could stop it. And so I never tried to bring that into the house. But from time to time, I would sneak away and pop my N.W.A. tape into my Walkman. And when I did that, I heard things. I heard things that I'd never want my children to hear at that age. Sexual and violent content that I couldn't possibly process in a constructive way or in a gospel-centered way at that age. If I didn't want to have an awkward conversation about sex with my father, I could just go and listen to a CD, and that's where I got, to some extent, my sexual ethic. And let me tell you, that, that didn't serve me well. It wasn't something that I laugh about or that I would promote or that I would recommend for anybody else. I heard things that kids shouldn't have heard at that time. And there's always been this debate, Chris, and I know you've probably heard it, about whether rappers are just describing their environment or whether they're glorifying negativity. And based on your social location, based on what narratives you're trying to protect, that's usually where your opinion of uh, on that question comes from. And I don't think we always have an honest conversation about it because we're, we're protecting certain cultures. However, if we're going to be honest, which is what we try to do on this show, we try to make sure that we're not protecting any narrative, that we're just speaking the truth. I think it's a bit of both. Some rappers are making art out of what they see around them. And some are exploiting and perpetuating what they know to be harmful but profitable. 
and music execs know what's profitable. I would also say that uh, 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 rap music doesn't have a monopoly on negative messages either. This isn't just about rap, but that's what we're focused on right now. And I would have to admit that to some extent, I took on the mentalities that were counter to what I was taught at home, but that I was I was learning in, in, uh, from you know certain lyrics. Mentalities really that but for the grace of God could have taken me out very early on in life and have taken too many others out too soon, if we're going to be honest. Now, is it just the music? No, you can't blame anything on just the music. We're talking about the influence that it might have. Music can certainly have an impact on its consumers and how their its consumers think, their sensibilities, their worldview, especially when those consumers' brains are still developing, especially when those consumers lack guidance in home. And thankfully, that wasn't the case with me. But for those kids who may not have the guidance, it certainly can be have a negative impact, in my opinion. All right. Hip hop though I love it, has always had a beauty and a deep brokenness. And I can't say that I've completely been able to reconcile at all times my fandom and my faith. There are certainly things that I won't listen to at this point. There are certainly things I say no way in the world am I listening to that. But I'm not always clear on where that line is to be drawn. To what extent can a Christian entertain some of these messages? Now enters social media, now enters the drill rap era, where kids are literally getting on social media, going and disrespecting somebody else's neighborhood until they get shot. And it's just an ongoing cycle that started kind of in Chicago. Drill music started in Chicago, but now it's really going on all around the nation. So, Chris, that, that's my monologue. But my question to you is, what impact do you think music and hip hop can have on people's minds, on what we think about and what we do, and also on communities? Yeah, I think it, you know, uh, probably would be worth uh, starting where I start my maybe less complicated relationship with hip hop. Um, because it's much more of a, a singular uh, sort of uh, experience, but but also very, very personal. So uh, I grew up in the west side of Chicago, and my brother, older brother, who's a little bit older than me, uh, if he were still living, probably, you know, what is he, like six years older than me, four years older than me. But growing up on the west side, there was a, a, a rap group on the west side of Chicago called Crucial Conflict. Mm, which gained, yeah, and they gained some uh, some popularity on the west side just because they, you know, they uh, did the kind of uh, you know super fast rap or whatever. Uh, but they wrote a song called "Hey" that gained them uh, national popularity. Uh, and my brother happened to know them. They did live in a culture of smoking a lot of weed. I saw what that did to to my brother, who was you know. Really smart, fairly studious, um, but regardless as to what people might try to advance in research, I'm going to still continue to advance the thought that if you smoke a whole lot of weed, it diminishes your drive, it diminishes your mental capacities and all that type of thing. And so from a very early age, for me, all the stuff that people rapped about 
was, in my mind, absolutely what they were living. Um, because that's, that was my connection, a group of folks who were doing exactly what they were rapping about and did it so much that it really destroyed their career uh, and, you know, messed up a lot of other people's lives, not the least of whom, in my opinion, would be my older brother. So I grew up with a very much not a love relationship with hip hop. Um, but then I did, for whatever reason, uh, I guess the Lord would ordain it. Uh, I did over time, almost every significant relationship that I've had, especially friendships, uh, were guys who like really love hip hop, who were rappers themselves. Um, and so I've heard a lot of the music uh, and even have come to to gain some some sort of like, uh, uh, I guess, secondhand affection for uh, for the genre. But it's never been it's never been like the kind of music that I listen to, uh, you know, what I'm trying to get, you know, my own entertainment. Uh, so then, you know, when you move into this current era of, of drill music that again has a really you know i have really strong feelings um about this because i'd, I'd live and, and do ministry in chicago like you said uh is where drill music sort of grew up uh in the, the in the early 2000s uh when i was growing up uh in this city i've sat through a lot of the funerals um i've been the guy in the pulpit at a few of the funerals of folks, uh, you know, who have just been gunned down in, in the ongoing street violence in Chicago, literally right now, uh, today. I mean, right now I'm, I'm at a conference. Um, but just last week, a young lady who lived directly across the street from me was, uh, was gunned down in our neighborhood. She and, uh, the, the baby in her womb, uh, both died, and, and and now that family, you know, is is working through uh, all of those issues. And so, when, when I think about drill rap, which you know these songs are filled with kind of like uh, obvious threats and uh, cryptic messages, uh, you know, gang sen- signaling sort of uh, messages back to each other over the songs. Uh, these guys are using these songs to terrorize their enemies. Um, and, you know, sort of make fun of their victims, which just perpetuates, uh, you know, further bloodshed. Uh, and so to me, this is like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really almost like a devilish and demonic type of a thing when I look at it, because it is it, it's twofold. One, the fact that you have a national and, and even increasingly international community uh, of people uh, who are sort of like, Drinking in what I see as like the worst sort of reality entertainment, um, because this is like real people's pain. And even if you try to think for a minute beyond like the, the, the folks who are like involved in it, because sometimes I think what people do in their mind is like, well, this is what these guys are getting engaged with. And they sort of get the fruit of their activity. They're getting involved. But every time one of these kids get shot, right, like there's a mother, there are cousins, sometimes they're children. Like, so this is impacting like an entire community Um, and people are drinking this in as entertainment. And and then you have these uh, industry people who have created this reality where 
it's it's almost incentivized because these these guys who are living these very difficult lives, you know, a lot of a lot of them, most of them, no relationship with uh, you know their fathers. I remember back when when Oblock was getting was gaining its reputation, right? That uh, before it was Oblock, it was Wick City. It was like double entendre because it was you know wild, insane, and crazy. But it was also Wick, like the food program, because everybody was poor. Um, and so the uh, the industry, though, has created this situation where there's a little bit of incentive because you can be trapped in that lifestyle. And if you if you do well in drill rep, then you can be plucked from obscurity and poverty and propelled into uh, sort of uh, fame and wealth. And so all that for me, like I have like a very, very strong negative uh, uh, feelings about the whole scene. Yeah, no, I, I can understand. You've been in the middle of it. You've had family experience with it. Um, and we do have to deal, and I think, you, I think you did a very good job. We have to deal with the complexities of urban life, the history of it, the racism, the flood of drugs into, you know, into these spaces, which does have an impact on the environment and how people see the world and how people treat each other. You can't run away from that. But at the same time, I think you and me also know that we have agency and that we make our decisions and um, we, you know, what decisions we, what the decisions that we make matter. Uh, and so you do see those decisions being influenced to some extent but what in some parts of the music is a deep spiritual wickedness, right? It's there, right? There's a beauty there in some of the music. So I don't think it's all or nothing, but there's a deep spiritual wickedness in some of this really violent music that we're seeing, uh, that we're hearing coming out of these spaces. And then again, to your point, we have these music execs who kind of add on top of that with the incentive of making money. You know, if you're if you're a young kid who is in poverty and you can get out of this poverty and all you see is people getting out of poverty by uh, perpetuating these messages, then that may be something that you're going to think is a good idea to do. And then at the same time, you have people who are wannabes that want to be a part of that lifestyle who really weren't, who aren't in abject poverty. There's so many different factors that play into this. But I think as Christians, we really do have to think long and hard about what we intake as far as music, what our children hear and, and how we deal with it. Cause I don't think either of us are saying uh, completely don't let people speak, right? Don't let people rap. We need to, this needs to be over. That's not, that's not the message, but how can we be more responsible with how we put certain things out there? What's accessible to children, right? And what these record execs are able to make money off of as children are dying. Go ahead. Yeah. And I, I think for me, to your point, content is critical, right? Because that, you know, I, I've been like great friends with people who do, you know, Christian hip hop, right? So who are totally taking the genre and, you know, putting God glorifying lyrics uh, to, to beats. And, and I think that's awesome, right? So content, I, I mean, I still that you know i don't listen to a ton of it because you know i just didn't grow up listening to the genre but you know I, I think that that's a completely different thing um 
and is uh you know that's that is is you know worthy of of, of support and celebration because the the content is good and i don't think that there's um you know th- there are some people who who sort of advance the idea that there is something inherently wicked in the genre um and like the literal style of music i don't believe that at all i think content is uh is 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 key just like any other form of expression but i do think that we have to think uh i think we have to think double about it as a society because you know there is a way in which you could say like oh well you're, you're targeting this particular genre but i would anticipate and hope that if any genre of music right like if i, I don't know maybe there is like a genre of music that is sort of like the soundtrack to the uh the sort of opioid academic epidemic uh the same way that drill music has become the soundtrack to street violence in chicago and if that's the case i think a lot of thought has to go into to that type of music but when you have a music that you really can say and and this is not all hip-hop but drill rap is it is literally like the soundtrack to the violence in our city and we have to think you know in a particular way about that particular type of music yeah and and we and we need to be honest about the fact that we're going somewhat off uh, off script here right so as somebody who's a hip-hop lover like myself i think what i'm supposed to say is the music has nothing to do with it right uh it's it's all just the circumstances around people um you know, one of my friends said, uh, there's not more, there's not more people dying. It's just more people are calling themselves rappers that are dying. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. I think what that is, again, is the protection of a narrative, a cultural narrative to say, hey, there's nothing wrong with our culture. It's all you. So anything that comes at our culture and says there may be something wrong there. No, 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 no. It's all you. And it's a way of kind of kind of pushing that away. And I think we need to get away from that because we have even within Christianity. For some reason, we are very slow to critique culture anymore. And I think part of it is because there was a moment not long ago, probably maybe late 80s, early 90s, where we maybe went too far and we were harsh and we were self-righteous and nobody liked it. Nobody liked to be around it. So now Christians are almost fearful of being seen as that kind of Christian that lays down those very harsh uh, uh, perspectives. But I would say let's not make the overcorrection. If something is wrong in culture, in their culture, in our culture, in anybody else's culture, speak the truth in love. And I think that's what we're trying to do today to say, look, I, 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 I see a beauty in parts of hip hop and you can't shut it off. And we know throughout history, there's been always been a struggle between the church and secular music. Right. And I don't think the church wins by just offering a criticism, but not a more insightful way of engaging. Um, And so we need to find a way to address this violence, to address some of these messages, to communicate with that with our kids. So they're not just intrigued by the things that we're telling them not to do, but they see the greater harm and even some of the potential in this type of music. I'll let you close it out, Chris. Yeah, I, I think you made the point masterfully. Uh, it, 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 there's so many people, I mean, I have a friend right now, uh, who uses hip hop, uh, in his therapy, 
um, he's a, a mental health, um, you know, uh, professional and he uses hip hop in his therapy. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned, you know, Christian hip hop there, you know, you talked about some of the, the conscious hip hop that gives more, uh, positive reflections, uh, on, you know, on culture and the plight of things. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm not about making like we don't have to use all art to make a rosy picture of, of really difficult situations, because if you uh, ever come to Chicago and, and walk around some of the communities and I mean, there are communities like this all over the country, this, this stuff is really happening. I mean, so it, it doesn't serve us to pretend that it's not happening. Right. Like in terms of violence, and poverty, like broken families, all that stuff is real. Uh, but I think some of the incentives that have been created in uh, the industry in the recent, uh, I guess at, at this point, like two decades, we need to be considering how that is impacting the broader culture and the fact that it's, you know, it, it's sort of taking advantage of a skill, you know, that people have in these difficult situations uh, and exploiting it without actually getting in uh, and and taking up some support of of the the work that a lot of folks are doing trying to change the dynamics within those communities. Yeah, that's real. That's real. So I know some of you are saying, well, I thought this was a political show. It is. But really what we're doing in this part of it is laying the groundwork or the context for the next conversation that we're going to have about whether these lyrics should be used in criminal proceedings. So we will be right back with that conversation on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. So we just had a discussion about uh, hip hop and hip hop's uh, real impact on society. I talked a little bit about my complicated relationship with hip hop, uh, seeing the beauty and seeing the brokenness and, and, and how sometimes that can be manipulated, how sometimes that can be exploited uh, for, for, for the wrong purposes. So you may be asking, I think it's a fair question. You may be asking, what in the world does that have to do with the church politics podcast? Isn't this podcast about politics and Christian political engagement or civic engagement? And I think that's a fair question again, but let me make the connection for you. All right. There is a connection here that we're getting to because I wanted to give that as context to my position on another issue, which I think has been brewing and uh, people have really been debating, which is should rap lyrics be used in criminal prosecutions? Should rap lyrics be used in criminal prosecutions? And I think there's two sides of this argument, and, and I get where both sides are coming from. One side, said, side says absolutely not, that we should not use rap li- lyrics in criminal prosecutions because what's going to happen is you're going to have somebody who is innocent, but they made a song and used this art form and maybe they said something violent or, or whatever. And those lyrics are going to be taken to paint a picture of that person in front of a jury that is not true. A prosecutor might have a case that's fairly weak, but they have these lyrics that are very strong and violent. And they'll use that to get a prosecution or to win it, win a case. That really puts that really was an injustice because the person didn't do it. And those lyrics were just words that they were using as art. And I think there's some legitimacy there. I think that could be used 
racially or, or, or whatever. We, you know, we would want to think that no prosecutor would do that, but you don't create laws expecting that everybody will act as they're always supposed to do it. You put guidelines in place to make sure people don't do things uh, that 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 would be unjust. OK, so that's one side. The other side says and the best argument on the other side, because there's more than one. But I think the best argument on the other side is. In certain cases, we should be able to use rap lyrics because. Yeah, there may be, you know, maybe there's chances that we don't want to use it when they're not actually talking about this specific case. But in this day and age where you have rap lyrics and you talk about drill music, you're talking about the things that we were just talking about before. In those situations where somebody's actually speaking about a crime that happened. So we're talking about speaking directly to something that happened. So Justin is a hip hop artist. Justin makes a rap about Pookie getting killed. Pookie actually did get killed. Justin also has texts that show that he was talking about the crime or that he was planning the crime. One of the people that did the crime with Justin is, has actually been arrested and, is, and is, is, is talking about it. Can the rap lyrics be, be used when somebody is admitting to a crime or speaking to a crime that actually happened? Not just speaking violently, but a crime that actually happened where they may have at, actually been in the area or had some connection to it. So those, those are, I think, the two sides of, of the argument. All right. Now, here's where politics comes in. According to CNN, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill into law a couple weeks ago that limits the use of rap lyrics in criminal court cases in the state of California. According to the article, this law requires a court in a criminal proceeding where a party seeks to admit as evidence a form of creative expression to consider specified factors when balancing the probative value of that evidence against the substantial danger of undue prejudice. And this is going to take a little bit of explaining because those are legal terms. Probative value of evidence means that the, the evidence actually moves us to moves the case towards proving something. That the evidence is relevant and that it actually moves you towards proving something um, or proving a point. Right. On the other hand, prejudicial would be it really just makes you look at the defendant in a bad way. It is not, you know, it's more it's more prejudicial. It, it, it creates uh, unfair bias. Right. You look at this person in a bad way, but you're not getting much probative value to where it's actually proving anything. Right. It's not proving anything to do with the case. So that's what probative versus uh, prejudicial evidence uh, that standard is about or that balancing test is about. It goes on to say that the new law underscores a larger national conversation. This is what we're talking about around prohibiting the use of rap lyrics as evidence in criminal proceedings. A tactics critics have called a racist double standard and an infringement on First Amendment rights. OK, so you see the two sides of this conversation. Now, I want to point out even Gaffin Newsom's legislation isn't saying that it can never be used. So there was a lot of there was a lot of celebration in part of the hip hop community. I wonder if they actually read what this said. It doesn't say that it can be used. It said there's factors to balance probative versus prejudicial uh, to, to balance, you know, those factors. Um, but it doesn't say it can't be used. Now, on the other hand, you have what's going on here in Atlanta where uh, Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis 
is using th- th- this type of evidence, but using it maybe even in a way that would fit California's uh, standard. And here's what Fannie Willis has to say about what's going on. Should you, if you asked her, should you use rap lyrics at all? This is what she would say. She said, I think if you decide to admit your crimes over a beat, I'm going to use it. I'm going to continue to do that. People can continue to get angry about it. I have some legal advice for you. Don't confess to crimes on rap lyrics if you don't want them to be used or at least get out of my county. So she's saying, look, if you admit a crime that actually happened, and we got all this crime in this city and you admit a crime that actually happened on a, in rap lyrics, then you will be prosecuted. And you may be thinking, because not all of you are close to the to what's going on right now. You may think, why was my admitted crime on rap lyrics? Well, it's clout. Unfortunately, in some parts, parts of the culture, if people really see you as doing what you say you do, then you get more clout, you get more attention. People are kind of intrigued by you. So you literally have some folks who are admitting to crimes, serious, heinous crimes, especially of other rappers or people in, 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 in uh, opposite gangs that are in opposition just to get clout. It's called clout chasing. It's part of clout chasing. OK, so these this is actually happening. And she's saying, if you admit it around me, then you are going to go to jail, whether it's a rap lyric or not. OK, and for me. This is my position, Chris. I don't think it should just be used completely disconnected from a crime to where all it is is something you said, but it's totally has nothing to do with the particular crime that's being said. No real connection to it. I I think that would be too prejudicial. However, again, if a crime actually happened, you admit to it or you put yourself somewhere around it or you saying, you know, the guys that did it or something like that. I think that it should be used. I think I don't see that as um, necessarily racist. I mean, Fannie Lewis is a black woman. And from everything that I can tell, she goes about her job in a way that uh, shows she that she has integrity. But she is a prosecutor. So she's not one of those prosecutors that acts like she's not one. I think she does a good job. Uh, So in those circumstances, I don't think that's necessarily racist to do that Um, when somebody's admitting to a crime. And I also would say this. In this case, no one is getting prosecuted just off the rap lyrics. That's not what Fonnie Willis is doing from what I can tell. The lyrics are usually part of a larger case of circumstantial evidence. Right. If you again, if you say you shot Pookie and Pookie really got shot and he was in an imposing gang in in an opposing gang. And, you know, there's other evidence that comes along to to say that you might have been there, that your gang had something to do with it then that should be used. No one is basing a whole case just on rap lyrics disconnected from everything else. That's not what's happening here in Atlanta. I can't talk to any, uh, I can't speak to every case, but that's not what's happening in this case in Atlanta. And I don't see this honestly Chris as a violation of freedom of speech in this case. Freedom of speech doesn't mean that your words don't have consequences. You're not being arrested for the words, you're being arrested for the crime the words described. And so in that instance, I would say that you should be able to use rap lyrics in an instance where they're completely disconnected from anything else. And all it's being used to is paint a picture of who you are outside of your record, outside of the, all the other things that they could use. No, 
That that's not what should happen. So, Chris, what do you think? Should rap lyrics be used in a criminal prosecution? I think that any art expression that can be used in a criminal prosecution probably should be used. You know, I think you laid it out well. Just because you rap about it doesn't mean that you're guilty of it. But just because you discuss your crime in an artful way doesn't put you beyond investigation and prosecution, right? So if if there's a crime and you rapped about it, I, I can't imagine why that wouldn't be uh, allowed uh, in court. Um, so I, I did get the opportunity, you know, uh, New Press published uh, a book from Eric Nielsen and uh, Andrea Dennis uh, called Rap on Trial, Race Lyrics and Guilt uh, in America. I didn't get to read the book, uh, but I, I did get to read uh, a, a pretty extensive interview with one of the uh, the writers of the book. And it seems like the the basic argument that's being laid out in the book is that there's studies that show that some of the uh, the the lyrics that people will perceive the same lyrics, um, you know, exact same lyrics. But if they are told that these lyrics come from a rap song, they will perceive them as more dangerous and more literal than they will from a country music song. Uh, and that is something uh, that needs to be considered. I have too much experience with you know, racism and discrimination to quickly dismiss charges uh, of racism and discrimination. And so, and, and so I think that's something that uh, has to be looked at uh, in this context. But I do think that there's something that has been sort of getting more and more under my skin, Justin, uh, in, in recent times. And that is what I'm beginning to see as this sort of warped view of equity uh, among folks who are pursuing a what I would call a strange version of social justice in this criminal justice space. Uh, and, and it's almost as if the idea of equity is that in it now in the name of justice and equity, we're going to let everybody get away with crime, right? Uh, we're going to let crime spread to all of the neighborhoods in Chicago. So we're, the way we're going to get equity in Chicago is not by getting crime out of black and brown communities. We're going to let the crime go into downtown and we're going to let the crime go into the wealthy neighborhoods. And then that's going to be equity. But in my view, that is a very, very warped idea of equity. I think that the goal of justice uh, should be to, to spread, you know, sort of righteous action. Um, I, I've even started using uh, sometimes in place of where I usually use the term social justice, using the term cultural righteousness, um, because I'm, I'm really trying to direct people to this idea that the goal of justice is to spread righteousness, not to spread unrighteousness equally. Right. Like we haven't done justice just by letting crime spread all over our city instead of being. Uh, trapped in, in in specific neighborhoods with black and brown people uh, who are also poor, right? So what what that what this would look like in, in my view is that if a if a country singer makes a song about you know killing his wife or something and his wife ends up dead, 
that singer should be investigated. That song should be used in in the prosecution, right? If there's other evidence that uh, is pointing in that direction, certainly that song, given the fact that the song is created, the wife is dead, and there's other evidence pointing in that direction, that should be used. And, and it shouldn't be ignored just because it's a country song or because, you know, maybe the singer of that song is white. I think that if, you know, a political uh, operative and, and sort of, uh, you know, elect, electedly connected uh, wealthy guy in Highland Park buys a gun for his uh, mentally uh, unstable son, that should be uh, investigated and taken seriously when it's reported to the police. And when something like that is ignored by law enforcement, we in the justice community should raise a lot of sand about that. But but the goal of equity and justice should be moving toward spreading righteousness, not toward spreading unrighteousness equally. So you, you can't accomplish equity and justice by saying we're going to let more people get away with bad stuff, right? You, you got to accomplish justice and equity by making sure that there's accountability spreading into spaces where there is currently no accountability. Right. And we know and we both know we we take charges of racism seriously. I think my greater point is I don't like those charges to just to just be thrown out as a cure all or as, as something that automatically makes you win the argument. You got to explain to me why that makes sense, especially looking at Georgia. You got somebody like uh, Fonnie Willis. Um, you have communities that are majority black, which is the ones that are being terrorized. You have mothers whose sons are, are usually going to be black who are being terrorized. How is it racist automatically in this situation that you use lyrics, not by themselves that are tied to phone calls, text messages, uh, um, testimony, right? That that's supposed to, like, we have to think these through instead of just throwing that out and saying, Hey, well, if I say it's this, then, then the conversation is over. Uh, I think that's very irresponsible. I think what it does and the reason that I don't like that is not because the race conversation isn't legitimate. It's because when it is legitimate and you throw out things just whenever willy nilly, then when you get a serious issue, nobody's listening to you and it loses the the uh, the the value or the meaning that it should have. Um, And so that's what we need to look at. I think in this instance, again, Fonnie Willis if she's prosecuting a country singer and the country singer admitted to a murder, then she's going to use it. She's not using it against these men because they're black. She's using it because they are tied to a lot of other things. And hey, if they didn't do it, they're pro- they're innocent until pro- proven guilty. If they didn't do it, I pray that they get off. I pray that justice is done. Nobody wants to see people just go to jail just because, um, you know, it makes us feel better. But what I'm saying to folks who are claiming to be social to care about social justice is you also have to care about due process. You have to care about victims. You have to care about our system working properly. And I don't think uh, by prohibiting um, admissions because it's a form of art that you like is going to help us get closer to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I just think. Again, it defies logic. There, there are plenty of people who are doing rap songs about violent material who are not being prosecuted because they're just doing a song about violent material. But if you name a guy in your song, you make a mixtape, release it on social media, you name the person, 
and and talked talk about killing him. And then three weeks later, that person's dead. Yeah, you are going to be under investigation. And if other details point in your direction, that song should be used in the prosecution. Nothing in the law makes us blind ourselves or, or you know, or cover our ears when you hear something that's directly related or circumstantially related to a crime. And we're going to leave it there on the Church Politics Podcast. We will be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast that was Hope you found that to be quite an interesting conversation. That's a conversation we're going to be having a little bit more. Just how Christians should engage pop culture, should engage different cultures. And what should be, as a black, you know, for folks in the black community, what should be our posture towards hip hop? I don't think it's all bad. I think there are some brilliant uh, rappers out there who do a lot of good and put a lot of good messages out there. But there is another, there is a different side that's having an impact on our community. How should we deal with that? Something to think about, Chris. All right. Next subject. Christian nationalism. According to Paul Miller, who's been a guest on the Church Politics podcast, Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation not just merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. Christian nationalists do not reject uh, the First Amendment and don't necessarily want a theocracy, if you ask them, but they do think Christianity should enjoy a privileged status in America. Now, late last week, our friend Chris, um, Russell Moore, who's now the I guess, chief editor at Christianity Today, wrote an article entitled Christian Nationalism Cannot Save the World. And he actually brings up somebody that we talked about last week, which I'm glad he did. Maybe we can flesh this out a bit. He starts by saying this. Just as some North Americans are explicitly claiming the label Christian nationalism, the ideology is advancing around the world. The ongoing near merger of the Russian Orthodox Church with Vladimir Putin's authoritarian government, made headlines when the church's patriarch declared that dying in Ukraine 
as declared dying that dying in Ukraine as a part of Putin's invading army washes away all sins. Let me say that since I didn't say it completely clear the last time. The church's patriarch declared that dying in Ukraine as part of Putin's invading army washes away all sins. Wow. At the same time, yet another populist leader employing Christian nationalist rhetoric won an electoral victory in Italy. I think we talked about this the other day. Analyzing Georgia Maloney's win, commentator Damon Lincoln, who we talk about quite a bit here, noted that her Brothers of Italy party has significantly moderated its its rhetoric in recent years. Some might view that with suspicion, given Maloney's post-election speech in which she blamed financial speculators for robbing for robbing Italians of their roots and identity, language that throughout history has almost always been equated with Jews. I didn't know that. So that's something that's that's helping us kind of flesh out what we might need to, the opinion that we might need to have about Maloney. Despite the self-perceived uh, opposition, here's here's kind of what Moore goes on to say. He says, despite the self-perceived opposition to the social gospel of old, Christian nationalists embrace the exact same view of the gospel. For the social gospel-oriented left wing, Christianity exists to build a social order in step with the upward progress of humanity. For the Christian nationalist right wing, Christianity exists to build a social order in step with national or ethnic identity. The gospel is a means for a forward-looking utopianism in the one case and a backward-looking nostalgia in the other. Listen to what he says here. Christian nationalism is a liberation theology for white people. What are your thoughts on this uh, article and Christian nationalism in general around the world, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, very, very grateful for the article. Um, I think that uh, the, the 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 quote that you read, I, I, I just want to read a, a a little bit more of that. Cause I, I feel like this is something that just, I mean, I, I want it to, I'm Pentecostal. So I wanted to get up and shout uh, when I read these words, right. Uh, Despite their self perceived opposition to the social gospel of old Christian nationalists embrace the exact same view of the gospel for the social gospel oriented left wing Christianity exists to build a social order and step with the upward progress of humanity. For the Christian nationalist, right-wing Christianity exists to build a social order in step with national or ethnic identity. The gospel as a means for a forward-looking utopianism uh, in one case and a backward-looking nostalgia in the other. Then Christian nationalism is a liberation theology for white people. Um, and I, I think that the the argument that Moore lays out here uh, is is one that we need to hear more. Frankly, I wish that we were making it more uh, in, in, in the black church, honestly. Um, but the, because, and, and the reason for that is that I think that the, the logical next step, if you embrace this argument, is to realize that when we want to come against Christian nationalism and we do so on purely sociological grounds, we miss the point and we leave a lot of more effective 
uh, argument, a more important argument, I would say, on the table. So when you come against Christian nationalism and your best argument against Christian nationalism is like, yo, this is racist. Yo, this is regressive. You're leaving out the most important part. Um, uh, theologically, I think the most important part. And I think politically, uh, the most potent part uh, is being left out when you're attacking Christian nationalism on those sociological grounds. You're saying it's racist. You're saying it's regressive. But you're not saying it's blasphemous. It's hypocritical. It is evil. It falls badly short of the high ideals of the Christian scriptures. And when you don't come at this from that sort of, uh, I think, a theologically stronger position, but also a, a much clearer uh, and accessible political position, you know, forget about the fact that it's racist. Sure, it's racist. Forget about the fact that it's regressive. Of course it's regressive. But it's hypocritical. It's blasphemous. It is. It is. It is not what it presents as, um, and so it is. It is evil and is bad uh, for our culture, right? I think that we we I rarely hear people uh, take on uh, sort of Christian nationalism from that sort of like securely theological footing and position. And so I was, I was very, very grateful for the article because I think that that is how we need to talk uh, about Christian nationalism in the, in the civic discourse. Those of us who are concerned about it, I think we need to talk more about uh, Christian nationalism in these terms in the public discourse. It may seem slightly too like Christian or theological, but I think it's actually the more politically potent, um, not to say that it's racist, it is inherently hypocritical, right? Um, it is, uh, it, it is, it is, it is blasphemous. It does not connect well with the high ideal of scripture. And I'll, I'll, I'll say just this, this one last thing: the way you stop the spread of a counterfeit is is not by always talking about the counterfeit, right? It's you, you stop a counterfeit by getting familiar with the real thing. Uh, I, I learned that my mother worked in banking uh, when I was growing up, and she, you know, is the one who really, you know, that's the first place I, I learned that when they train bankers on counterfeit money, you don't spend time dealing with a lot of counterfeits. You spend a couple weeks dealing with real genuine money so that when you're familiar with the real genuine thing, um, you know, you can identify all of the fakes. Uh, and so there's there's really an opportunity here for those of us who are concerned ultimately about the gospel to actually have a spiritually impactful and politically potent opportunity just to present the, the true gospel as it is in scripture. Um, and so I was, I was really grateful for the article because I think what, what, what more lays out is the first step, which is to look at Christian nationalism and say, the the thing that is bad about this, and, and and not that racism is good, racism is bad, regressivism is bad, but another thing to look at here, and the reason this won't work as a solution for uh, for any society is that it's actually rooted in in hypocrisy, and it's actually the same thing that a lot of people who get caught up in it is the same thing that you don't like 
about what the folks on the left do. This is just folks on the extreme right doing the same thing. Um, yeah, holding up that mirror is always an effective way to get people. Well, it should be effective way to get people to see what they're doing that they don't like in others. Um, and, you know, Christian nationalism, you hit it on the head. The, the biggest issue is it's not biblical, right? It, it, it almost assumes that somehow America is more of God's nation than Brazil is. And there's nothing that says that. It almost makes the assumption that what we do is somehow right or somehow going to take us closer to God, regardless of what it is. Right. So it, it, there's this self-justification in it. There's a self-justification of our history. The other thing is, is what you're calling Christian in this in this form of nationalism is a lot of times just cultural. Is a lot of times just dealing with your ethnicities and your preferences. And so the interesting thing about when I talk about Christian nationalism on social media, half of folks on the right, the far right will say, oh, it doesn't exist. It's something that people just made up. Nobody's trying to be a Christian nationalist. The other half will be saying, no, shouldn't everybody be want to be as a Christian? Shouldn't we all want everybody to be Christian and want our nation to be run in that way? And we say, no, we want civic pluralism. I want to go out and I want to evangelize. I want to make sure that uh, solid values are reflected in our laws. And so, yeah, that's the point of view that I'm coming from, but I'm not going to impose that on other people. I'm not going to pretend that throughout history, this has been a Christian nation. And if we just go back to what it was, then we're somehow closer to a utopia that we know never was. I'll have you close this out, Chris. Yeah. I, I, I think that the, um, you know, in terms of the fight for the folks in the middle, because right, they're going to be people on the far left. They're going to be people on the far right doing their thing. Uh, those of us who want to pull more folks at the grassroots level into a reasonable middle, um, I think that's where it is effective to hold up uh, a mirror uh, in front of, of Christian nationalism and just show uh, the sort of internal weaknesses, the fact that it claims, it, it makes claims based on a text that it that the text doesn't actually say that, right? Like if, if you say that going to war for Vladimir Putin washes away all your sins, that ain't nowhere in the Bible, right? And if, if we can just point that out, it's not that everybody in the middle cares about what the Bible says, but I think people do care that this person who's supposed to be a cleric, who's supposed to be a, a professional handler of the text is saying something that is blatantly against the text and doing things that are blatantly against the text. It's just propaganda, right? It's, it's national propaganda, which is why you don't want, want that marriage because you start using Christian terms and all that in national propaganda. And that's not where we want to be. Yeah. So it's, start, it's a lot. I think that but I thought that was no, it's, it's all good. I, I think that what Moore lays out is is the strongest argument against Christian nationalism. It is a lie. Right. Love it. Well, that's another episode of the Church Politics Podcast. As always, we are glad that you joined us, that you thought this was something you were going to take your time to listen to. If you think it's worth your while, please share it with other people. We have spread and we have grown our audience based on word of mouth. And so we appreciate everybody who makes a recommendation. 
if if you see us somewhere, let us know that you're listening. Let us know how you found out about us. Uh, but as always, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. I said, King of-